Father God, we thank you that uh, you are here with us. God, we know that uh, because of the truth of the resurrection, the reality is, is that you are ever present to us. God, there is nowhere that we can go where we can escape from you. And so, God, today we ask that you meet us here. We ask that you fill us. And Jesus, we ask that you free us, that we can live this liberated, resurrected life in our world. And so, God, we give you the praise and the glory that you deserve this morning. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you may be seated. I'm not going to make you stand the whole time that... uh, that I preach here, which is probably a good thing. Uh, how are you guys doing this morning? I know we're a, a smaller crowd that's either like people slept, wanted to sleep in and get that extra hour of sleep, or they forgot to set their alarm clocks. I'm not sure which one. I, that's why I love my phone, because it just does that thing for me. I don't even have to think about it. I don't have to worry about it. But uh, here's the deal. I ne- actually need your help today for two, two reasons. Um, the first reason is this. When, when I usually preach on Sunday morning, it's because, well, the boss is away. All right, and so uh, well, the boss is here today, actually, and uh, so I need you guys to like help me. I need you to laugh at my jokes, okay? Thank you. Hey, hey, there we go. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I need you to laugh at my jokes today. On uh, number one, and and number two is this, and I, I gotta set this. I gotta set this one up a little bit. Um, a couple weeks ago, I actually was in Montreal. I was speaking at a at a retreat at a church uh, uh, in Montreal who uh, my buddy actually uh, is, is the pastor there, and so he invited me to come up for the weekend and spend time with him. Now, you know that we used to live, my family and I used to live in Montreal, and, and I mean, we've lived in lots of places in Canada, and everywhere we've lived in Canada, we've kind of left a, a piece of our hearts there. Uh, Montreal is a place, that was one of those places for us that we actually, uh, we actually you know, felt like it was home. For us, and so I was really curious to see how I was going to feel when I went to Montreal and was speaking there with my friend, and uh, you know, if if this place was still going to feel like home. And the interesting thing was this: is that at the end of the weekend, as I was kind of reflecting on uh, you know the things that had gone on there, I, I realized that you know what, Montreal, it, it's got a special place in my heart. Uh, but the thing that really shocked me and surprised me was that Toronto is becoming home. That was the thing, yeah. That was the thing that uh, that was the thing that hit me, is that Toronto is is coming. Uh, uh, Toronto feels like home, and so you guys, at, at, in you know, as proxy, have become kind of a family to me and and my family as well. Uh, you know, I we we consider you guys and we consider ourselves part of the part of the Bayview Glen family here. And so because today is kind of a, a special day for me in terms of I don't Lucas has uh, made a. a an allusion to it last week. Today is actually my installation service. Okay, so that means we make everything official. Yes, we acknowledge that Dave works here now, and uh, everything is is good. So, uh, so here's what I need from you because uh, you know I, I need a family photo. All right, and uh, so so uh, now you don't have to get up and move around because the way technology is, I can just put the panoramic setting on my phone here. And uh, you know, throw a little, throw a little selfie. Well, actually, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do the selfie because that'll just be weird. Um, but I am going to take a picture of you. And if you friend me on Facebook, you just maybe see that you might see this picture there. So I need you guys to say cheese, and you got to hold it because the panorama takes me a little while to get around. All right. So it's going to be like a cheese. Okay. So here we go. So we're going to start over here. Are you ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Yeah. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. You guys are great. <laughs> and there we go. All right, perfect. Thank you for indulging me in that. 
Well, let's let's jump into uh, to uh, where we're going this morning. You know, we've been kind of working our way through uh, a series called the Trellis and the Vine, and uh, these verses in John that are going to appear up on the screen for me here have kind of formed the backdrop for our conversation regarding what it means to kind of follow Jesus. And and it says this uh, from John chapter 15. It says, "I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser." Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, by looking at these verses, we have discovered some important truths about who we are, and our connection to God the Father and to Jesus the Son. And so like we've been doing for the last few weeks, uh, we've been kind of going over this little, uh, it's going to come up. Oh, hey, my snapper works just as well as Lucas's. Uh, look at that. So it's going to come up here on the screen. So we're going to repeat these things together. And I know it's a little tired, and, but like I said, you've got to make me look good. The boss is here. So here we go. With lots of energy, start. I am a branch. My job is to bear fruit. Jesus is the vine. He gives me life. The Father is the vine dresser. He prunes me so that I bear fruit. Well, if you are just joining us today, we've been using the image of a trellis as a metaphor for our spiritual practices. And over the course of this series, we have been talking about how spiritual practices such as Bible reading, fasting, prayer, and silence and solitude create a spiritual trellis that supports our spiritual growth. These spiritual practices that we've been looking at uh, create a spiritual trellis that support our spiritual growth. Dallas Willard has said, spirituality wrongly understood or pursued is a major cause of human misery and rebellion. See, our spirituality should be something that is life-giving, not a source of guilt, misery, and pain. Well, I mean, if you're an early riser, maybe uh, this week you will experience a little bit of pain as you kind of readjust your alarm clock and, you know, figure out your daily schedule to make room for your spiritual practices or exercises. So each week, our goal has been twofold. We've tried to establish a truth about our trellis, as well as a spiritual practice so that we can do our best to keep ourselves on track in developing a spirituality that is helpful and not a hindrance to our life in God. So the first trellis truth that we looked at was this. God doesn't care how pretty your trellis is. God doesn't care how pretty your trellis is. You see, the purpose of spiritual disciplines or practices is not to make us look good, but to help us look more like God to pursue godliness or godlikeness in terms of our character in action and, and actions. The second trellis truth was, was this. Our trellis never weighs us down. It always lifts us up. Just as a real trellis keeps the branches of a vine off the ground so they don't become diseased or damaged, the trellis of our spiritual practices serves to keep us lifted up, to keep us spiritually healthy. The third trellis truth that we looked at was an effective trellis is rigid. Our spiritual practices need some stability and structure in terms of carving out time and space and creating a routine as we seek to implement our spiritual practices. Well, 
Pastor Lucas has been challenging us uh, he, uh, at the beginning of the series. He actually challenged us to practice these spiritual practices that we've been learning like all this season of Lent until Easter. So my question to you right now is, how is it going? How's it going in carving out time and space for our practices? Are we still uh, trying to put these disciplines into practice. I know it's been tough. I know, uh, and, and here's the one thing that I have learned about building a trellis with some rigidity. It's simply this, is that it's really tough to do alone. It's tough to do alone. You see, there, there's no one to keep us on track. You see, our spiritual practices are called that for a reason. We are in practice. We are practicing meaning that we are going to struggle with these exercises for a while until they become familiar. This is actually, and uh, this is my commercial here for life groups, all right? This is actually why we purposely launched our life groups in conjunction with this series. I can speak from my life group experience that it's been great to have people to walk with as questions come up about these practices, as well as to be able to encourage one another to keep up our practice of these disciplines. So if you are struggling in terms of staying disciplined with these practices, don't feel guilty. Don't beat yourself up. Know that we are in practice here. But my advice would be to you, grab a couple of buddies that you trust and help one another stay on track. Or come talk to me about the possibility of joining a life group. And uh, we can go from there. So now I got my life group question or uh, commercial out of the way. Uh, we can move on to what was trellis uh, truth number four. You see, trellis truth number four we looked at last week, and it was this. How we talked about how the trellis exists in order to keep the branch connected to the vine. It is as we stay connected to the true vine, Jesus, and draw life from him that we will bear the fruit of a transformed heart and life. So as we begin to talk about trellis truth number five, let's jump back into our John 15 passage and see what else we can find there about constructing our trellis. Last week, Lucas pointed out that in the first, verse, the first 11 verses of John 15, the phrase bear fruit shows up six times. Now we know that when something is repeated that many times in a short passage, we need to pay close attention. We need to pay close attention to what that phrase is referring. In this case, we've already been over it. We know it's our job as branches to bear fruit. But what fruit? What is the fruit that we as branches are supposed to produce? Well, if you were here last week, we established that the fruit we are supposed to produce is that of godly character. Now, if you're like me, you're asking the question here, godly character, what does that look like? What does godly character look like? Does Jesus give us any specifics regarding this question? I think the answer to the question of what, fruit of, God, of what the fruit of godly character looks like can be found in some of the verses that we looked at last week. Last week, we spent some time looking at the word abide. This word abide refers to a remaining or a staying connected to we discovered that the word abide is actually mentioned 10 times in the first 11 verses of John 15. Look at the verses here, uh, John 15, 4 to 6. They say this, abide in, oh, sorry, I don't have them up there. We'll take that one down and I'll just read them to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, 
you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are, burnt, are gathered together, thrown into the fire and burned. You see, all throughout the first part of John 15, when we come across this word abide, it is couched deep in the metaphor of the vine and the branches. But then things take a bit of a twist here in verse 9, and we'll pop that up on the screen here now. Things take a bit of a, a twist in verse 9. You see, Jesus then steps out of the metaphor of the vine and the branches. He steps out of the metaphor of the, bri- the vine and the branches for a second because he wants us, uh, because he wants to clarify um, its meaning, what it means to abide. He's telling us that abiding means remaining in him and, and remaining in his love. It says this, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So let's think about this for a second. If abiding in Jesus or staying connected to Jesus means that as branches we are nourished by his love, then as we draw life from a God who loves us, the fruit of godly character that we are to produce is love. But not just a feel-good emotion where everything is all like rainbows and unicorns kind of love, but rather a love that smells and tastes and nourishes like God's. Simply put, the character of our fruit is a love like God's. See, I posted a picture of, uh, on Facebook the other day, which uh, got 57 likes, um, which is actually a record for me, but uh, I'm, I'm not counting. Um, but I noticed that underneath the picture where it tells me how many people have liked the image, there, there was a heart now, not being a prolific Facebook user, I had to defer to the Facebook expert in my house, which is my wife, to uh, find out what this heart meant. She says, well, honey, it means that someone loved your picture. As I talked about this, I, I am realizing how hopelessly out of touch I sound. Obviously, my teenage daughters aren't doing enough to make sure that their daddy stays hip and cool. Um, I guess if you want to take your like to that extra step, you can now select or click on love. This takes the whole competition for Facebook likes to like a whole new level, okay? Like, I mean, most people say, hey, check it out, I got 85 likes. I'd be like, yo, I got 36 and 10 loves, all right? That's like uh, 360 likes altogether. I mean, beat that, right? So, um, so... But as I was further reflecting on this, I couldn't help but think how this is but another picture of of how love is practiced in our culture. We talk about the values of tolerance and acceptance of others, but at the end of the day, our love is really selective. We love who we want to love. Not only is our love selective, but we want it to be, we want our love to be effortless. Love should be something that just wells up from within us. It should be passionate and exciting and make us feel alive. When we think we're in, we think we're in love when things just click. Now, I don't need to go into the detail here for us to realize that trying to define love according to our cultural standards and practices is often an exercise that leaves us unsatisfied and confused. I think it should be obvious to us that to produce a love like God's is a much more meaningful and, more diff- and more, much more difficult than clicking love it on a Facebook photo. So what does it mean to produce a love like God's? 
You see, Jesus then goes on to define what a love like God's looks like. Looks like. So let's pick it up here in verse 10. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay, his life, to lay down one's life for one's friend. You see, the Greek word that we translate as love into English is the word agape. Agape love is different than how we would culturally define love. Agape love is not defined by feeling, but it's defined rather by choice. Agape love refers to a love that is not selective, but is self-sacrificial. A love that by choice seeks the well-being of others. A love that is so steadfast in its commitment to others that those who love like this are willing to suffer inconvenience, discomfort, and even death for the benefit of someone else without expecting anything in return. This is the fruit that our trellis of spiritual practices is supporting the production of. Agape love. See, as we abide in Christ and draw our life from his love, this sacrificial love, the giving of ourselves for others should be the result. In fact, Jesus himself said this, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Dallas Willard has said, the aim of our spiritual formation is not behavior modification, but the transformation of all those aspects of you and me where behavior comes from. Our behavior is a product of our character. So what Willard is getting at here, and I would agree with him, is that as we abide in the love of Christ and allow ourselves to be shaped by it uh, through our spiritual practices, we will experience a transformation in our character so that we reflect the God in whose image we are created. A God who the scriptures define as love. You see, the goal of our spiritual practices is to produce the fruit of godly character, which Jesus defines in this passage as a God-like love. Well, as we continue to move through this passage to discover trellis truth number five, we have to ask ourselves another question. Who is the fruit for? Who is the fruit for? You know, we know that the purpose of fruit is not to stay on the tree or wither on the vine. Fruit, once it is harvested, is able to be shared in various forms for our nourishment and enjoyment. We have already mentioned that in the first 11 verses of John 15, Jesus uses the term bear fruit six times. In verse 16, Jesus jumps back into the metaphor of the vine and the branches and uses this term one last time in the passage. He says this in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I choose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide or that your fruit should remain. So who is the fruit for? The fruit is for the world. You see, when Jesus tells his disciples for the last time that they are to bear fruit, he does so with the command, go. Fruit bearing is not just something the disciples are supposed to do in order to become good people. Bearing fruit is now their mission. We have talked before about how in this passage we are encountering some of Jesus' last words to his disciples. 
he is now sending them out into the world, not only to bear the fruit of a godlike love, but to share this love with others so that it abides or remains in them so that the world is transformed by this love that comes from God. You see, although the goal of our spiritual practices is to develop us in, godly, in the godly characteristic of love, this is not an end in itself. The end is that our neighborhoods, our cities, and ultimately our world would experience the fruit of God's love through those of us who have been transformed by it. It is through us who bear the fruit of God's love and share it with others that they are able to taste and see that the Lord is good. So we've arrived at it here. We've come down to what is trellis truth number five. Trellis truth number five is this. The trellis exists to help keep our fruit accessible. The trellis exists to help keep our fruit accessible. Our spiritual practices help produce in us the fruit of a God-like love, which we are to share then with others. Well, like we've been doing uh, as we've been going through this series, we introduce a trellis truth, and then the next thing we do is move on and, and talk about a spiritual practice. And this morning, I want us to talk about a practice that can actually help us in keeping our fruit accessible. And it's the best one. It's the easiest one of all the ones we've talked about so far. It's the practice of hospitality. The practice of hospitality. You see, we get our word hospitality from the Greek word uh, philoxenia, which literally means love of the stranger. Love of the stranger. The spiritual practice of hospitality is about welcoming the outsider by sharing our homes, our tables, our stories, and ourselves with them. It's through the practice of hospitality that the fruit of God's love is shared with others through the sharing of our lives with them. John Vanier, a Catholic priest who uh, started communities for disabled people all, all across the world, has said this, In the midst of all the violence and corruption of the world, God invites us to create new places of belonging, places of sharing, of peace, and of kindness. Places where no one needs to defend himself or herself. Places where each one is loved and accepted with one's own fragility abilities and disabilities. This is my vision for our churches, that they become places of belonging, places of sharing. This is the practice of hospitality at its simplest. It is about creating spaces where people can belong and where we can share our lives with one another. See, out of all the practices that we have looked at so far, I think that the practice of hospitality is actually the easiest to put into practice. As long as you have a table, you can do it. Our tables are where we can live and tell God's story, where we can share the fruit of God's love with others. It's where we can share uh, his love as we invite those in our neighborhoods to sit with us. The table at our house is actually really important. When we first moved to Montreal, um, somebody had told us that um, you need to go and make, sorry, I just gotta take a drink here, <clears throat> talking too much. Um, when we first moved to Montreal, well, that so somebody told us that we needed to actually buy a large table. That they said, that's the one piece of furniture that you need to invest in when you go to Quebec, is you need to get a large table. And I was like, well, wh why is that? They're like, because people in Quebec love to eat. 
All right, they love to eat. They love. I mean, in fact, what we noticed there is that we we didn't even need to buy like living room furniture. You know, we did, but we hardly ever sat in the living room because in that culture, in Quebecois culture, the table is so so important that you sit around it for hours. You actually don't leave, and so you need to make sure that you have a big table and that you have comfortable chairs. And like I said, our table is very important to us. Uh, it, it's it's where stories got shared. It's where life was lived. I can remember when we first got the table. Um, uh, actually, a couple years after we got the table, my son Sam, when he turned three, uh, all of a sudden he he became a storyteller, and he would bless us with these what we referred to affectionately as Sammy stories. All of a sudden, j- during the meal, he would just stand up on his chair at three years old, and he would just start to tell us a story. I uh, just just one uh, you know that that he was making up there on the spot, but his stories always had the same ending. The ending was this is that somehow a monster came in and ate everybody that was there, and, uh, and that's how the stories ended. Um, you know, we, we all laughed as a family. We thought this was funny. It was kind of a, a thing that uh, we thought was cool around our table, but then all of a sudden Sam thought that it was, would be a good thing for him to take his show on the road. And so uh, he started to do this at all the tables that we went to. Everybody got Sammy stories about monsters and eating and uh, all that kind of stuff. But in, in, the, in the scriptures, the, the table is actually something of significance as well. It's, it's incredibly important. In fact, if we look at just the book of Luke itself, the table is mentioned, the word table is mentioned 16 times in that book. Or as the word love, like we've just been talking about for a while, is only mentioned 12. The tables are significant because significant things happened around the tables where Jesus was at. Religious leaders were rebuked, tax collectors and prostitutes were embraced, stories were shared, lessons were taught, fights over who would sit where, food and drink were enjoyed, friends were be- and friends were betrayed, just to name a few. But there is one table that we attach a greater significance to than all the other tables mentioned in Scripture. One where a kingdom was proclaimed. One that... Uh, one that created a new community out of an old one. One that embodies the values that shape who we are as the people of God. One that holds our stories in the symbols of bread and wine. It's one where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And in doing so, actually gives our tables a context. See, Luke 22, verses 14 to 20 say this. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is, my, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, what did Jesus mean when he said, do this? What did he mean when he said, do this? Did he mean the Passover meal? I mean, that's what the disciples had gathered together to celebrate that night with him. That's the meal that Jesus was so excited to eat with them. Did he mean the Passover meal, a a, a once-of-year celebration? 
Or did he mean a simple partaking of bread and juice like is the usual practice of many evangelical churches? You see, the fact that Paul corrects the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11 in their practice of the Lord's Supper suggests that the practice was more than just a partaking of simple elements. In fact, if we look at Acts 2, verses 40, uh, Acts 2, 42 to 46, it says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. From this practice of eating together, breaking bread in their homes uh, every day, theologian John Howard Yoder actually states this. He says, the meal Jesus blessed that evening and claimed as his memorial was their ordinary partaking together of food for the body. You see, Yoder believes that the Eucharist or, or the Lord's Supper now provides the context for our ordinary or daily meals. When we practice hospitality, we need to remember the context of our tables is founded in the Lord's Supper. So if this table is the context for our normal eating and drinking, what then are the implications for our own tables? What then are some of the characteristics that shape our table fellowship, that shape our hospitality? Well, I got three things that we're gonna go over fairly quickly here um, that talk about the character of our tables. The first one is this, is that our tables need to be sacrificial. Our tables need to be sacrificial. See, at the Last Supper that Jesus celebrated with his disciples, he gave of himself. He gave of himself there. If the, characters, the character of our tables is going to reflect the Eucharistic context that Jesus gives them, then they will involve sacrifice. So what does sacrifice look like? What does it mean to be sacrificial? There's a couple things I think that it means for us in our culture today, and I think the first one is this. We need to set aside our personal agendas. To be hospitable, to be sacrificial, we need to set aside our personal agendas. You see, we are busy people. But if our tables are going to be places where we can live and tell God's story, then our personal agendas will need to be sacrificed in order to make room for those who need to hear God's story. Just like any practice, we need to actually carve out time for this. We need to carve out space. We need to have our table in order for our tables to become a place of belonging. Well, what's another way that we can actually live or have our tables be reflect the sacrificiality of, of, of the Eucharist? It's simply this. We need to welcome the generosity of others. I know this might sound weird. How is welcoming the generosity actually of others actually being sacrificial? Well, can I just say this? When, when people start asking, when you invite them over, if they start asking you if uh, they can bring anything, start saying yes. Just start saying yes. In a world where our meals get cold because we're too busy taking pictures of them for our Facebook feed, we feel this pressure to put on the perfect meal. This pressure can actually prevent us from sharing meals with others at all. You see, welcoming the generosity of others actually invites them into this culture of giving. It invites them into the sacrificial practice around our tables. It allows them to participate in the sacrificial character of our tables. Well, not only do our tables need to be characterized by sacrifice, but our tables are also communal. 
Our tables are also communal. They are, they are open to all, and they, are, and they are open to everyone, regardless of class, race, gender, you name it. In the economy of God, in the kingdom of God, the table is set for everyone. Our tables are a prophetic word to our culture of individualism. They are invitations to a different story. A story in which our friends and neighbors matter more than the likes on their latest Instagram photo. A story that exposes the shallowness of the disembodied community that they experience via social media. I just want to read a poem for you uh, taken from this book uh, entitled Other, Embracing Difference in a Fractured World. It's called Small Screen Community, or Small Screen Communion, sorry. iPod, phone, held close and thumbed, illuminating so dimly the lichened branches, fingering the above are such small lights on these paths at night. What possible guidance could they offer? Yet still I look, still we look so intently at their ever-decreasing thinness and ask of them the same as wafers once gave. See, what this poem is talking about, small screen communion, is how we actually sacrifice uh, we actually sacrifice community, uh, community where we sit face to face with one another, community in which we are invited to sit at God's table. And we sacrifice it for um, this artificial, this disembodied community that we experience through our phones or our, our tablets or other devices. We actually don't get in touch with people. Our tables become these spaces then that are communal. Our tables call people out of their small screen communities and Snapchat stories by giving them opportunities to experience and develop real and authentic connections. Well, not only do our tables need to be communal, but our tables also need to be slow. Our tables need to be slow. You see, we are actually inviting people to share life with us. Our tables need to be places where people can linger. When we were actually living in Montreal, one of the things that we did there was, was planting home, was plant home churches. And uh, we had one neighbor who was extremely curious about what, uh, what home church was like. She was always asking us, you know, so tell me, like, like what goes on at home church? Like, what, what is this about? She, she wasn't a follower of Jesus at all, and, but was really inquisitive. And I, I said this to her. I said, I said <clears throat> Ange, this is what we're about. Um, this is our hope. Our hope at home church is this, is that you would come, that you would sit at our tables, that you would eat our food, that you would laugh at our jokes, that you would love our kids, and that you would bring your spiritual questions. That you would bring your spiritual questions and allow us to talk about these things. That's what our home church was about. It was to be about this slow process. The reality was is that she never actually came to our home church, but her and her family did spend a lot of time around our table and us around theirs where our conversations would slowly wind their way towards questions of faith. We all know that life is not a sprint to the finish. I'm not in any rush to get to the end. Um, life is a slow journey, best taken with others. Our tables are places where we can share in the slow journeys of others and them with ours. So what do we do now? Well, here's my challenge to you guys. I want you to practice hospitality. 
I want you to create a space around your table for others to belong. You see, like I said, Pastor Lucas has kind of challenged us to put into practice these things that we've been learning throughout uh, this period of Lent. And so my invitation to you here, my challenge to you, is that in the next two weeks, before Lent finishes, is that you have someone new in your home. You have someone new in your table. Invite them in to be with you, to belong with you. As you leave this place and go back into your neighborhoods, may the Eucharistic context of our meals shape the culture and the character of our tables. We are going to move into a time of communion, and I think it's really fitting that we actually celebrate communion at the end of a talk on hospitality. Because the table of God is actually where hospitality starts. This communion that we are about to partake in, this this meal of, of bread and of wine, actually is a reminder that this is where hospitality has come from. So today we come to remember. We come to remember the cost of our welcome into the kingdom of God through the sacrifice of Christ. But we also come to remember who we are. We are a sacrificial community that is open to all. We're in the midst of sharing life together can experience the hope and healing of a God who restores us and welcomes us to his table. The worship team is going to come up and uh, lead us in a song as the elements get passed around here today. And I just want to open up, or I just want to start our time of, of communion with a word of prayer. Father God, As we come before you today, we are thankful that uh, our table is not closed to you. Or uh, your table is not closed to us, sorry. That your table is open and, and inviting. Your table has a place for all of us. And so God, today as we actually consider the hospitality that you have shown us, the hospitality that has welcomed us into the kingdom, has called us sons and daughters and puts us as heirs to your promises. Lord, we just, uh, we say thank you. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus here for us today. We thank you for his arms stretched out that although we're nailed to a cross, actually form the embrace for us to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And so God, today we remember you. We remember you through bread, through wine. We thank you for the nourishment and enjoyment that comes through this simple meal together. We pray these things in your name. Amen.